the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Hey, good afternoon and welcome to the Friday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. James Blind is producing Clark Hilton Engineering. Dan Rice has given the use of his office for the cause. Today we're going to hear from Mary Graybar. She is the author of Debunking Howard Zinn, very relevant to what we're seeing happening in our country today, exposing the fake history that turned a generation against America. And in the 5 o'clock hour, I want you to hear a conversation I had with Steve Brown. Uh, Talk the walk, how to be right without being insufferable, a challenge for us also in this time. We'll also take a look at some of the headlines that are a little bit on the lighter side and share with you what's going on in Washington and in state houses all across the country as well. First, to look at some of the headlines, President Trump told Fox News Town Hall with Sean Hannity on Thursday night, uh, presented a rare opportunity for the nation's commander-in-chief to answer questions coming directly from everyday Americans. The Town Hall audience uh, members from Green Bay, Wisconsin, didn't hold back asking the, the president, rather, about numerous topics, including mail-in voting, the recent rioting in American cities, and what the president considered to be his greatest accomplishment since taking office. Addressing one audience member's inquiry, Trump said he thought mail-in voting posed a bigger risk to a fair election come November. I think it's not the most important question I'll be asked, Trump said, after the audience member wanted to know how the president will make sure the election is free from fraudulent and absentee votes and mail-in ballots. Uh, Trump raised his concerns about states like California that plan to do an all-mail-in ballot election this fall because of coronavirus concerns. The president said mail-in ballots would raise questions about the integrity of the election. Another audience member asked the president what the administration would do to keep the streets safe after the unrest in Wisconsin this week. The president responded by saying that if former governor, uh, Wisconsin Governor Scott Walker, a Republican, were still running the state, it wouldn't have happened. Wisconsin's current governor is Tony Evers, a Democrat. You happen to have a Democrat governor right now, the president said. Democrats think it's wonderful that they're destroying our country. It's a very sick thing going on. Nobody's ever seen it. Uh, Trump also claimed the radical left was manipulating presumptive Democratic presidential nominee Joe Biden and would soon take him over. In other news, as the coronavirus resurges in hot spots across the United States, health officials are doing everything they can to safeguard Americans who are most at risk of the disease. According to data from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, hospital visits were six times higher among patients with underlying conditions, and those same patients were 12 times more likely to die from COVID-19 than their counterparts without medical conditions. The five highest reported underlying conditions in patients with COVID-19 hypertension, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, obesity, chronic lung disease. Other related developments, the CDC has added three new coronavirus symptoms to the list, and a Texas man with coronavirus has infected 17 relatives at a surprise birthday party. It was hard to tell if Joe Biden or President Trump would be appearing in south-central Pennsylvania on Thursday by the looks of crowds gathered near the presumptive Democratic nominee's campaign stop, 
But the uh, former vice president was greeted by Trump fans uh, making a big gaffe during his campaign stop. Well, pro-Trump uh, Trump supporters were out in force in Lancaster holding Trump signs and chanting four more years and USA as they gathered roughly 100 yards from where Biden unveiled his proposals on health care. At one point, a large semi-truck bearing photos of Trump and Vice President Mike Pence pulled up outside a local recreational center where a pro-Trump crowd had assembled. To make matters worse, during the campaign stop, Biden also mistakenly claimed that 120 million people had died from the novel coronavirus, overstating the number by about 100 times. People don't have a job. People don't know where to go. They don't know what to do, Biden said on Thursday. Now we have over 120 million dead from COVID-19. Well, the U.S. has seen at least 124 thousand deaths, not millions, from COVID-19, according to data from Johns Hopkins University. Worldwide, more than 488,824 fatalities from the virus have been reported. The former vice president's comments were immediately questioned by Republicans and the Trump 2020 campaign team, as they call the former vice president very confused. In other related developments, the House passed... um, The Democrats sweeping police reform bill one day after the Senate GOP bill stalled. The Democrats refused to move forward on the procedural vote and the left community is swearing off police. However, a homeless camp is moving in. Uh, The president's executive order directing the feds to prioritize skills over college degrees and hiring as we try to reopen the economy. And Florida officials are fighting both coronavirus and West Nile. In uh, business news, Amazon agreed to buy a self-driving startup Zeus, or Zook, I'm not quite sure how they're pronouncing it, for over $1 billion. And hackers targeted dozens of corporations, eight Fortune 500 companies, Semantic, apparently. Well, the um, full quote from Hawk Newsom, Black Lives Matter leader, saying, give in to our demands or we will burn down the system, is this. If this country doesn't give us what we want, then we will burn down this system and replace it. All right. And I could be speaking figuratively. I could be speaking literally. It is a matter of interpretation. Franklin Graham says this. Black Lives Matter leader said, if this country doesn't give us what we want, then we'll burn it down, uh, down the system and replace it. This advocates uh, advocates. Uh, violence and anarchy. He says, I hope that governors and mayors will take steps to restore law and order in our cities. Jerry Dunleavy says, who is the, says of the co-founder of Black Lives Matter, uh, names a uh, convicted cop killer as one of her heroes and the BLM uh, national organization is fiscally sponsoring, uh, rather sponsored through a leftist group whose board of directors includes a convicted terrorist. Meanwhile, from Katie Kiefer, Activists claim that whites and police are primarily responsible for holding blacks back. In truth, black father figures are the foremost differentiating factor in their offspring's quality of life, and the statistics bear that out. You can read further Katie Kiefer's article in Town Hall. Well, as a party slips further into complete nonsense, according to ABC News, D.C. Democrats uh, want Abraham Lincoln to be removed from the nation's capital. Three House Democrats want the federal government to stay out of the way as vandals take down the monuments. And it turns out Mount Rushmore really is in their sights. From Daniel Hinegar, give the left some credit. After tolerating their liberal betters for years, they knew when the opportunity had arrived to push them over the cliff. They have just taken it. Wall Street Journal. And as predicted, Democrats and the media are seeking to keep Biden out of debates after arguing how difficult it is to schedule debates. This Washington Post op-ed argues it's time to rethink the presidential debates altogether. 
Hmm, interesting timing. Molly Hemingway says, I was just saying yesterday that the media would push to get rid of debates for fear of how Biden will perform in them. We'll see what happens. Meanwhile, um, here in uh, Oregon, where all must wear masks except for African-Americans, uh, we made national news headlines as Lincoln County declared that uh, while for the sake of one's health and the health of those around them, we should wear masks. The exception would be for African-Americans. Now, by the way, they have uh, rescinded that order uh, since then. But this quote, people of color do not have to follow the new rule if they have heightened concerns of racial profiling and harassment over wearing the mask. I will tell you, if there are concerns about racial profiling um, and harassment, the masks will make very little difference. It will be there with or without them. That's my own editorial comment. From Red State, one, uh, this is blatantly unconstitutional. You cannot have a mandatory mask law for only certain races. The fact that the local governor, uh, government rather, would even try um, shows how far off the deep end they've gone. But worse, this is essentially putting minority lives at risk. If masks are really as important as they say, they can't have it both ways. Do masks work? Or not. If they work, do they uh, uh, want black people to die? Interesting quote, putting it into perspective. New York Times um, is shocked to find that feminists are actually agreeing with uh, Education Secretary DeVos changes on campus. From the story, um, the move set off a liberal uproar denounced by union representative uh, uh, representatives representing teachers and college professors by the National Organization for Women and by an array of Democratic senators. The Trump rules, they said, constitute a radical rollback of protections for victims who seek justice after sexual assaults. But Ms. DeVos' actions won praise from a surprising audience, an influential group of feminist legal scholars who applauded the administration for repairing what they viewed as unconscionable breaches in the rights of the accused. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll take a quick break and take a look at, uh, when we return, take a look at some of the lighter side of the news. We'll revisit some of the news headlines at the top of the hour. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We thought we'd take a look at a little bit of the lighter side of the news. Hey, James, uh, who is joining me right now, did you hear about the peanut butter and pickle sandwich Twinkie? No, but I can honestly say if I had, I would have tried to forget it. Now, this was initially introduced on National Mustard Day, and they took to Twitter at that time uh, with a photo of a potential flavor writing only the real ones know about these. I'm not sure what that means, but Hostess is pretty much known for pranking fans on social media. So in honor of National Mustard Day, which some months ago, Hostess shared a photo of a mustard-filled Twinkie that was just as realistic as the potential peanut butter and pickle Twinkies. Uh, it's always uh, hard to tell when they're pranking followers because Twinkie does roll out new flavors from time to time. What do you think about the mustard-filled Twinkie or the peanut butter and pickle Twinkie? You in? You out? Oh, I'm so out. It's not even funny. I mean, they, yeah, no, I no, no. Just, you know, there's some things when you no. put them together, they sound like they might, you know, I can see how that might... Peanut butter and pickle, no. And certainly a pickle Twinkie, that's just not. Even a sweet pickle would not uh, would not fit. Well, followers were pretty quick to share their feelings about the potential flavor, and they didn't hold back. I'm calling the police, one person wrote. This is what happens when Hostess does bath salts, another wrote. Just because you can stuff things into other things doesn't mean it's always a good idea, a third follower replied. I like that one. Just because you can stuff one thing into another doesn't mean it's a good idea. 
That's very fair. That's really fair, in fact. <laughs> well, Hostess doubled down on the claim, um, even though some followers were convinced it was a prank, when um, Redbox's official Twitter account replied, writing, Say psych right now, Hostess fired back with, Come on, fam, the next go-to movie snack. Will they appear? Will they not? Hmm. Not really sure. Peanut butter and pickle or mustard. I, now, if I, you took oh, yeah. go ahead. If you took a little of the sweet down from the hostess, and it was just more like bread, you stuffed a little um, I don't know hot dog in there, then maybe or not, or just order a hot dog. That might be the better way to go. Well, Twinkies cereal is also an option available. Uh, Twinkie cereal could be part of your balanced hostess snack cake themed breakfast. Now, I have to admit, when I was growing up, not on a regular basis, but occasionally we would have Cocoa Puffs or Trix, um, Lucky Charms, Apple Jacks. There were different cereals that were quite sugary that we would get to eat. But um, a Twinkie cereal, I'm not so sure. The idea of turning a Hostess snack cake into cereal isn't totally insane. That was proven by the first two Hostess products that were introduced um, in bowl-worthy form, courtesy of Post last year. That was the Honey Bun cereal and Donuts cereal. Did you try either one or bring them into your house, James? No, I can honestly say I did not. Yeah. Are they healthiest, healthier breakfasts? Well, obviously not, but probably most everyone reading this has eaten one of these kinds of breakfast. And at uh, the very least, if someone told you they ate a hostess honey bun or a pack of donuts for breakfast, you wouldn't stare at them with in disgust because that's, you know, a time that you typically eat them. However, if someone told you they ate a Twinkie for breakfast, I'm not sure you'd get the same, uh, same grace. Well, what about Twinkies as a cereal? Twinkies are not a logical choice to turn into a cereal, but on the bright side, the reportedly forthcoming release of Hostess Twinkie cereal might finally make an make it okay to eat Twinkies in the morning. What do you guys do in the morning? Are you a, are you cereal people? You know, I, uh, it it just depends. I mean, you know, pre uh, pre COVID, if you will, I was more of a just run out the door in the morning person. Uh, occasionally grabbing a like a meal bar or something like that, and uh, pretty bad about it. You know, breakfast has ever been a strong suit. We've tried to get better since we've been uh, hunkering down. And uh, one of the things that we'll do is uh, there's a bagel shop not too far that uh, does sales on Monday, and we'll pick up a couple days worth of bagels uh, and do those. But yeah, uh, I, I, it, it does bear an interesting question though, Georgine, that. Uh, Throughout this quarantine period, has there been any incidents where, you know, either not quite around to the food shopping yet or just kind of in a weird rush to be in your house somewhere that you have found yourself eating a meal that you would never normally eat as a meal? Yeah, that's a good question. You kind of eat what's there, which is, you know, in human history, that's what people did. You yeah. put stuff together that you wouldn't normally when you have an abundance put together. I'm sure that's probably uh, has probably been the case. I won't even mention some of the things I've eaten. Let's move on. <laughs> I, I, all I can tell you is this. that this it, it may have happened to somebody I know. Not going to name names. But it, there could have been a day this week where out of laziness, I might know somebody uh, that uh, had uh, ice cream sandwich for breakfast. And the problem with that would be? A, he, that person also had it for lunch. 
Oh, an ice cream sandwich sounds so good right about now. Well, you know, things are rough here at home, but they could be rougher. In fact, in Poland, they almost got, well, really rough. Poland accidentally invaded the Czech Republic in what they're calling a minor misunderstanding. You'd be forgiven for not knowing that the Polish military recently invaded and briefly occupied territory in the Czech Republic. It seems like a headline that one would read, but it appears that even the Polish troops didn't know what they were doing, which is kind of frightening. A spokesperson for the Czech Foreign Ministry confirmed uh, on Saturday that the Polish soldiers mistakenly deterred citizens from entering a church on the Czech territory uh, in close vicinity with the Czech-Polish borders. Now, how do you get confused about where the line is drawn when you are professional military um, personnel? Well, Czech officials say the incident happened uh, just about a month ago in a small village, uh, the name of which I won't attempt to mispronounce, just across the border from Poland. They added that their diplomats immediately notified their Polish counterparts and that Polish soldiers are no longer present at the site which Czech nationals can again visit as they wish. Poland's foreign ministry confirmed the incident while contradicting the assertion that it was officially notified. Neither the ministry nor the Polish embassy in Prague were formally informed about it, according to a spokesperson. According to our information, the case was discussed by the authorities responsible for border protection on the Polish and Czech sides, the ministry press office said. In the spirit of good Polish-Czech relations, we believe that this was only a minor misunderstanding that was quickly cleared up. Oh, if only uh, these um, conflagrations could be minor misunderstandings that could be quickly cleared up in other places, North Korea, Israel, Palestinian territories. You know, what's interesting is you have the uh, really the first potential war you can blame on Waze. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> And then there's this, um, a U.K. man who apparently is a media personality. He found caterpillars in his supermarket broccoli, and most of us would just squeal, maybe return it or wash them down the sink. But no, he decided to raise them as his own. This uh, British media personality decided to raise uh, it to maturity, only to find that there were six others among the uh, broccoli shoots uh, that he discovered sometime later. Well, he was shocked at first, but that feeling soon turned to joy when he realized that he had a new pet to enjoy during lockdown in his London home. I did my research initially and discovered the exact type of caterpillar butterfly uh, we were dealing with, a cabbage white, he told uh, the Huffington Post. I then decided to build him a little home in my lounge with all the broccoli he wanted. Well, he gave his new companion a name, Cedric. Uh, in case anyone's interested, the name uh, they went with was Cedric, and he's from Spain, at least we assume, uh, because that's where the broccoli was from, and he dances after eating spinach. Well, to make a long story short, too late, uh, he and his six siblings, foundlings, I'm not quite sure how to refer to them, were raised until they were uh, chrysalis, and then, I'm not sure if they were butterflies or moths or what they ended up being, but... Uh, the, he raised them to full maturity and was quite sad when he had to let them go to a life of freedom and maturity. Wow. What is a life of maturity? I don't know. <laughs> well, it's not being a caterpillar anymore, I guess, is about as mature as you get. That's certainly as close as I'm coming. And that, that means I've been, I've been mature all my life because I have never been a caterpillar. <laughs> well, there you go. 
Hey, coming up next, we're going to share a conversation with Mary Graybar. She's the author of Debunking Howard Zen, whose influence is far-reaching. The subtitle, Exposing the Fake History That Turned a Generation Against America. That's coming up next. We'll be back at 5 with uh, headline news, continuing to uh, give you a glimpse of what's happening all around the country. So stay with us. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. I have so looked forward to the conversation I'm about to have with my next guest, uh, Mary Graybar. She's the author of Debunking Howard Zen, Exposing the Fake History that Turned a Generation Against America. Well, Marx's talking points are dominating American education, brainwashing students to believe American history is nothing more than a litany of oppression, slavery, and exploitation. As an African-American, I understand our history. I know it. My family was impacted by it, but I don't buy this stuff. How has this happened? Since 1980, socialist Howard Zinn's A People's History of the United States has dominated the American education system as the textbook of choice for leftist teachers across the country, turning young students against America and into foot soldiers for a progressive revolution. If you want to know where much of what we're seeing now has come from. Well, in the book Debunking Howard Zinn, she exposed, or rather exposing the fake history that turned a generation against America, my guest demolishes his popular history, a history pushed by Hollywood celebrities defended by university professors who know better and assigned in high school and college classrooms. There's even a children's version. She reveals uh, Zinn's bag of dishonest rhetorical tricks, his slavish reliance on partisan history, explicit rejection of historical balance, a selective quotation of sources to convey the exact opposite message of what their author intended. Well, Mary Graybar is a resident fellow at the Alexander Hamilton Institute for the Study of Western Civilization and the founder of the dissident professor uh, prof education project. She taught at the college level for 20 years, most recently at Emory University, and her work has been published by The Federalist, Town Hall, Front Page Magazine, City Journal, and many, many others. She joins us today to debunk Howard Zinn. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, you're welcome. My pleasure. Really appreciate it. I want to begin by just asking, who is Howard Zinn? Because while in academic circles he's well-known, in education circles where his uh, book is is pushed and a children's version is now widely available, most people may have, uh, the book came out in, what, 1980? Most people have no idea who Howard Zinn is, although they have seen his influence. Yeah, well, Howard Zinn died in 2010. He was born in 1922. Um, he was a, a member of the Communist Party, actually. Uh, we're 99% certain of that. But he promoted a, a communist message in his book and in his other writings and spoke favorably about communism. Um, he taught at Spelman College from 1956 to 1963, uh, which then really did adhere to its Christian principles. Um, and then uh, was fired from there, uh, incidentally, by the first um, black president of the college and the first male president of the college for insubordination. Um, he led the students um, on these protests that were harmful to them and um, inspired them to uh, rebel against the administration and against going to chapel and so forth. And uh, But he was soon landed on his feet, and he was at Boston University where he taught until he retired in 1988. And um, he was asked to write a people's history of the United States in the late 1970s. And basically, uh, as you reviewed, he uh, wildly distorted the history, threw together, um, you know, some 
you know, dubious sources and, and cobble together this book, which is, uh, which has exceeded all records for a history book of its type in terms of sales and influence. It really is quite remarkable how that has happened. You write in the, uh, I think it's in the preface of the book, about the context in which this book emerged. There were a number of historians who were discredited at that time as his book was about to come out, and somehow his emerged and flourished uh, when a number of historians were discredited, even though he's not a great historian, uh, and, and even critics who would agree with some of his um, uh, priorities had to say that this is not a, a, a good work of history. Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, there's Michael Kazin, uh, you know, well-known leftist, and uh, when he reviewed the book, he called it uh, more appropriate to a conspiracy monger's website than to a history book. Um, yeah, so it, it was uh, criticized on the left as well. I mean, by any standard measure of history writing, um, what's in a people's history is uh, fraudulent. It's, um, you know, it's not backed up by statistics. It, uh, you know, uh, promotes uh, rumors, a conspiracy theory. Uh, he uh, takes quotations out of context. He makes speakers say the opposite of what they really did say. And up until now, no one has really gone through his book and systematically checked it against uh, his sources or what other historians have said. And I, I did check with historians both on the right and on the left. And I went through his own papers at New York University. I went to the Martin Luther King Center. I went to the Library of Congress and Emory University and did research and, um, and discovered that this uh, book is a fraudulent piece of history. And yet, deliberately so. Deliberately yes. so. And yet, it is it's a very popular book, and in the academy, it's it's uh, embraced in colleges and universities all across uh, the country. Uh, the the young people who were raised on this book are now lawmakers. Uh, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez is one example, running on socialist platforms. Um, how did his teachings influence this? Um, well, you know, when you hear something like. Uh, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez calling uh, the detention centers, you know, of, of the people who are trying to come into the country concentration camps. That's exactly what Howard Zinn did in the people's history. Uh, so, you know, we interned the uh, Japanese Americans during World War II. That was widely known, you know, even before um, the order was given. Um, and that's been criticized. Uh, it was criticized, actually, by J. Edgar Hoover and um, George Schuyler, a prominent African-American journalist at the time, a conservative, um, also by uh, Senator Robert Taft. So there is a debate about, you know, whether or not that should have been done uh, within the context mm -hmm. of war and what the fears were. Um, but by no stretch of the imagination could those be called concentration camps. Uh, and, you know, Howard Zinn lied about the information. Uh, you know, uh, I mentioned that uh, Kazin called his book, uh, you know, a conspiracy theory. Well, Howard Zinn presents, um, avid his evidence is that um, there was an article in late 1945 uh, at the end of the war that exposed these uh, so-called concentration camps. Well, that's patently false. 
<laughs> there were daily newspaper articles about, um, you know, sort of the uh, the police going after the Japanese as well as German Americans and Italian Americans, you know, who were suspect. Uh, there were daily reports. There was a, a film um, narrated by Milton Eisenhower shown in movie theaters. Uh, there was actually uh, an article in the 1942 Harper's Magazine, the same magazine that he cites, that describes life in uh, these camps. Um, you know, it wasn't uh, luxurious, but they were clean. The food was good. There was plenty of it. Uh, there was a, a foreign legion uh, station in, in the one he went to. Uh, people had gardens. Their children played baseball. So um, it, it's uh, just, uh, it's obscene to um, claim that those camps were concentration camps. And as people have rightfully said about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's statement, um, you know, and, and one of the things I point out also is this has such an influence on millennials, uh, you know, the majority of whom now approve of socialism or communism over capitalism, uh, there is a woman who was elected to the Oklahoma City Council, and instead of placing her hand on a Bible, she placed it on a people's history of the United States. Hmm, written by Howard Zinn. Now, how did he yeah. his history become so popular? You, in the introduction, uh, remind us that in Goodwill Hunting, there is a reference, several references made there, and that um, Hollywood has helped to popularize all of this. But trace for us how his history became so popular. Well, the ground had been set. Uh, so a lot of the people, uh, you know, the 1960s generation, the Vietnam protesters, they went into education. Uh, there have been studies done of the percentage of them, and it's disproportionately high. And so they uh, were already writing uh, these uh, ideological left-wing histories. Um, and uh, they, you know, a, a prominent historian, Oscar Handlin, had, uh, you know, criticized them. Other historians had criticized them. Well, Howard then took what they wrote and just ran with it. <laughs> he made it, you know, even uh, worse. He magnified what they were saying, and he put it together in this book. But he also added this uh, flair. He had this uh, ability to write and um, to touch people's emotions. He did it illegitimately, um, but he was able to do that. So he has made people cry, uh, you know, after they read a people's history. Some uh, have become angered. He's inspired Antifa, the guy that was going to blow up, um, you know, the, the detention center in Tacoma, if you recall that, uh, well, maybe about a month ago. Mm -hmm. uh, he, in his manifesto, said, read Howard Zinn. He was his hero. Yeah. We're going to continue our conversation, but I do need to take a quick break. Again, we are talking with uh, Mary Graybar. She's the author of Debunking Howard Zinn, Exposing the Fake History that Turned a Generation Against America, a very important book to deconstruct uh, what he has, uh, his influence, what he has written, and what the truth is. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. 
is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Howard Zinn's A People's History of the United States has sold more than 2.5 million copies. It's pushed by Hollywood celebrities, defended by university professors who should know better, assigned in high school and college classrooms to teach students that American history is nothing more than a litany of oppression, slavery, and exploitation. His history is popular, but it's also massively wrong. Joining us uh, to talk about that and continuing our conversation is uh, scholar Mary Graybar, who uh, is the author of D. Bunking Howard Zinn, exposing the fake history that turned a generation against America. Well, there certainly are influencers who have pushed this book and popularized it. But what significance uh, role has Zinn played in today's education system, his book as well as his system of education? Well, teachers have adopted his uh, own teaching strategies, which involve not, you know, extensive reading and uh, writing papers and doing research, but uh, you know, going out and protesting and keeping journal entries and, uh, you know, not taking any tests. So uh, there has been the destruction of knowledge. But um, his book is being used, The People's History of the United States, is being used in colleges of education. And sometimes the teachers that, you know, are using that book are not getting any other version of American history. Uh, so that's what they get, and they pass it on down to their students. And uh, as you probably know, most of the uh, textbooks that are adopted are left-wing anyways. And uh, so they have this notion that Howard Zinn's version of history is true, and uh, so they pass that on to their students. And, you know, if you think about it, you know, people who read A People's History when it came out in the 80s, uh, you know, they've had children. They may have grandchildren by now. And so they think that his version of history is the real one. They don't think there is anything wrong with it. Um, and uh, so, uh, you know, that is passed on through the generations. And so we're getting into the second generation of Zen's influence. Uh, teachers also can go to the Zen Education Project and download lessons uh, from the book. Uh, right now, there is a campaign to abolish Columbus Day. The Smithsonian, I wrote about this uh, yesterday, is sponsoring teach-ins for teachers um, and using Zinn's materials. And uh, they are learning how to lobby legislators to abolish Columbus Day. Um, it, you know, there are graphic books, you know, comic books, uh, you know, with Howard Zinn, um, he appears in uh, song lyrics. There, there's a play, uh, you know, it's going to be on Broadway about his life. Um, it, you know, they have uh, book festivals dedicated to him. Uh, Occupy Wall Street had a library in New York City, and uh, Howard Zinn's books were staples. Uh, Black Lives Matter, uh, they're influenced by Zinn, and now Antifa is influenced by Zen, and I think we're really getting into some dangerous territory when we're talking about Antifa. So uh, it, 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 it's, you know, it's almost, it's difficult to measure, but uh, if you ask any, you know, the common person, they'll likely uh, say, yeah, I've heard of Zen. Um, some people, you know, uh, saw Goodwill Hunting and were introduced to him. Mm -hmm. Teachers, professors are introducing students um, to him, recommending him. Um, 
you know, I just heard of that a couple of weeks ago. Uh, so it's it's not measured, but uh, by the book sales, by the adoption in the classroom, by the cultural references, Zen's influence, we know, is just growing exponentially. I think most people assume that once something is in print, if it's embraced by the academy, that there must be good scholarship. Yet even uh, those on either side of the ideological spectrum have acknowledged that Zen's scholarship is is, uh, poorly done. And it's hard to imagine how he has succeeded as well. Uh, as he has, particularly among academics? Is it because he is parroting what they want to hear? Uh, How is it that he has managed to resonate with so many, despite the fact that his scholarship is so poor? Um, Yeah, I I think you uh, pinpointed a large part of that, and this is uh, something that I go into in my book. Yes. Uh, the Michael, yeah, Michael Kazin, the the uh, scholar I mentioned, you know, on the left, you know, was once a member of the Weather Underground and criticized uh, Zinn uh, when the book came out. But in 2010, it, uh, Mitch Daniels, when he was governor of Indiana, had emailed people uh, in education. He learned that Zinn's book was being used in an NEH, National Endowment for the Humanities, summer session for teachers to get continuing education and he was outraged and expressed it in these emails well these were revealed by a ap reporter in 2013 um and by that time mitch daniels was president of purdue and michael kazan and the other leftists who had criticized in now attacked mitch daniels I mean, it's truly amazing, you know, how they went 180 degrees and, uh, you know, accused Mitch Daniels of ignorance and censorship and not understanding how history is written. Hmm. Um, so, so to, uh, you know, to attack Zinn uh, is uh, sacrilegious in uh, leftist academia. Uh, you know, I, I've even gotten a couple... I got a couple pieces of hate mail before the book was out. (laughs) Because you don't challenge the oracle of Zen. It's important for us to understand his influence, to understand his writing. What do you hope to accomplish when people have a better uh, appreciation for how he has managed to work his way into our education system to influence generations? And are you hopeful that we can reverse course with a clear, um, accurate understanding of history? Um, yes, well, my book is intended to be a tool, an expose. Um, up to now, I don't think that students who were fed this stuff or parents or the general public um, had something that would rebut what Howard Zinn is saying. So I try to lay it out. And so every time he makes a misstatement or he plagiarizes or he quotes out of context or just lies, I uh, come back and with other sources with my original research and expose that. So for students who may be facing a professor, you know, who loves Howard Zinn um, and his spouting his view of history, uh, they can have this book and go back and say, well, okay, this is what Howard Zinn says, and this is actually what the truth is, and they can go back and check all my footnotes. This is extensively footnoted, um, and they can have a tool, and maybe this will help us 
to um, you know bring down Zinn's reputation, uh, he, you know, and to expose his fraudulence as a scholar. He is not a legitimate historian or a scholar. He is a communist propagandist. I am so grateful for the book. I am grateful for the time that you've spent talking with us about it today, and I would highly recommend it to parents, to students, to anyone who wants to understand the course that the culture is taking, to understand some of our lawmakers and this uh, bent toward uh, Marxism. This is an excellent book to help us uh, not only understand, but to be able to respond effectively. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us. You're welcome. It was my pleasure. Thank you. Again, Mary Graybar, author of Debunking Howard Zinn, Exposing the Fake History that Turned a Generation Against America. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. Welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Later this hour, I want to share a conversation with Steve Brown, Talk the Walk, How to Be Right Without Being Insufferable. That's coming up. In our next segment, a return look at some of the day's headlines. Some House Democrats passed a reform bill aimed at ending police misconduct and racial bias. But few Republicans supported the measure and it faces little chance of consideration in the Senate, according to the Washington Examiner. Democrats blocked debate on the GOP authored police reform bill on Wednesday in the Senate, rejecting an offer by Republican leaders to try to amend the measure. The House bill passed easily on Thursday by a vote of 236 to 181 with all Democratic support and three GOP votes, but party leaders didn't allow debate or vote on any Republican amendments. The Hill explains why, and I'm quoting, the gridlock paired with the looming election raises the prospect that lawmakers will fail to send a police bill to President Trump's desk this year. Now that is such a sad commentary that for the sake of an election and what you can campaign on, they won't do anything. According to Fox News, the Supreme Court ruled Thursday for the Trump administration in a key immigration case determined that federal law limiting an asylum applicant's ability to appeal a determination that he lacked a credible fear of persecution from his home country does not violate the Constitution. The ruling means the administration can deport some people seeking asylum without allowing them to make their case to a federal judge. The 7-2 ruling applies to those who fail their initial asylum screening, making them ineligible for um, uh, other screenings, but eligible for quick deportation. As the Washington Examiner editorial board deduces, the ruling rectifies a misguided decision by the Ninth Circuit by recognizing that not everybody who crosses the U.S. border for any reason instantly enjoys all of the same rights as U.S. citizens. Well, the Trump administration is urging an end to Obamacare, which the media inevitably links to a heartless view of pandemic sufferers. Joe Biden's campaign is uh, limiting contact with foreign governments now that Hunter Biden's windfall from foreign governments is politically injurious. And government watchdogs um, are finding one million relief checks were sent to dead people. One million of them. At uh, Mayor Bill de Blasio's behest, Black Lives Matter will be painted on Fifth Avenue outside Trump Tower According to the New York Times, well, the CBP uh, chief says 95 percent of illegal immigrants are being returned rather than detained. And tide, the tide rather is turning against uh, Huawei companies issue Chinese telecom over espionage fears. And Russian criminal uh, group is finding new targets, Americans working at home. Well, major implications for the death rate of COVID-19, the CDC says coronavirus may have infected more than 20 million Americans, 10 times more than reported. Of course, 
uh, perhaps 10 times more than known. Governors of Texas, Florida, and New Mexico are pausing their reopening plans amid a surge in cases there. And in Washington state, not wearing a mask, a face mask, will be a misdemeanor. Pregnant women are five times more likely to be hospitalized if they contract COVID-19. Well, Verizon is uh, joining a list of companies pulling ads from Facebook over its failure to crack down on hate speech, which is ultimately about silencing conservatives. And Americans uh, rush to start businesses, stoking optimism for a rebound. That's good news. We hope it's um, not misplaced. Microsoft is permanently closing its retail stores and the Fed said in a release that big banks will be required to suspend share buybacks and cap dividend payments at their current level for the third quarter of this year. Oil and gas firms are suffering significant contraction in the second quarter activity as well. Well, keeping the narrative alive, NASCAR shares a picture of a noose from Bubba Wallace's garage, says a search at all tracks found only one pull-down rope in a noose. You can decide what you think. Colorado is re-examining one black man's 2019 death in police custody. And police are a real risk, claims the Washington School District, severing ties with law enforcement there. Racism solved. The Dixie Chicks officially changed their name to The Chicks. And racism ultra solved. John Lennon's Imagine tops the list of woke national anthem alternatives. I will... uh, Leave the country if that's the case. Well, BET founder Robert Johnson, or rather co-founder Robert Johnson, says black people laugh at white people who topple statues. And four out of every five Americans reject spending taxpayer money to pay damages to descendants of enslaved people in the United States. Protesters plan to topple the Emancipation Memorial Friday evening despite new protective fencing. And it's estimated that 6% of adults have attended a protest in the last month. China and Russia rank as worst offenders in human trafficking, according to the Washington Free Beacon. Well, on this day in history, 2018, U.S. Representative Joe Crowley of New York, the fourth-ranking House Democrat, loses a primary to a 28-year-old liberal activist, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, a political novice. Also on this day in history, 1870, the first section of Atlantic City, New Jersey's boardwalk, is opened to the public. 1900, the U.S. Army Dr. Walter Reed begins his research into the causes of the deadly yellow fever. The U.S. Public Health Commission, headed by Major Reed, would find that the deadly disease was transmitted by the uh, by a mosquito. It's a particular type, the name of which... I'm going to leave alone. 1963, on this day in history, President John F. Kennedy visits West Berlin, where he delivered his famous speech expressing solidarity with the city's residents, declaring, Ich bin ein Berliner, which actually means I am a pastry, but was intended to mean I am a Berliner. In other words, I can relate. 1993, President Bill Clinton announces the U.S. has launched missiles against Iraqi targets because of compelling evidence Iraq had plotted to assassinate former President George Herbert Walker Bush. And finally, on this day in history, 2015, the U.S. Supreme Court holds a 5-4 decision that the 14th Amendment requires all states to grant same-sex marriages and recognize same-sex marriages uh, granted in other states. Well, the House of Representatives today voted to make Washington, D.C. the 51st state, a move cheered by Washingtonians and Democrats as a long overdue acknowledgement of full citizenship, while Republicans pan the effort as a Democratic Party power grab. The vote, you guessed it, 232 to 180. The vote fell largely along party lines. Representative Colin Peterson from Minnesota, one of the most conservative Democrats in the House, was the lone Democrat to oppose the bill.
The bill is presumed dead on arrival in the GOP-led Senate and is also opposed by President Trump, who would likely wield his veto pin if the bill ever got to his desk. Champions of the legislation, mostly Democrats, said statehood is about affording the residents of D.C. equal citizenship and ending the injustice of paying taxes, serving in the military and contributing to the economic power of the United States while being disenfranchised. Protesters here in Portland set fire to a police precinct. They damaged businesses in North Portland as the riots or the protests or demonstrations, depending on what time of day and what location you're referring to. Well, a group of protesters set a police station on fire and looted nearby businesses during a clash with officers in northeast Portland early Friday morning. The, the Portland Police Bureau called the demonstrators' action more aggressive and violent than those seen in weeks past. Officers used CS gas to disperse the protesters out of concern that the lives of officers and others inside the Bureau's north precinct were at risk. A police bureau spokesperson said one officer was seriously injured and taken to a hospital. Several other officers suffered minor injuries. All are expected to recover. The demonstration began Thursday evening with a march from Fernhill Park to PPB's uh, North Precinct at Northeast Emerson Street and Martin Luther King Boulevard. Around 10 p.m., the group began building a fence stretching from the police station across Emerson Street to the Boys and Girls Club. According to police, demonstrators tried and failed to breach the police precinct's doors and began barricading themselves inside, or rather instead, to trap officers inside. Demonstrators also began throwing things, including glass bottles, at officers. They threw fireworks at officers and threatened to burn the police station down. That effort was, however, thwarted. Meanwhile, Lincoln County has dropped the mask exemption for people of color after uh, what they call racist commentary. Uh, the county was hit with a tsunami on Tuesday and Wednesday, but it wasn't the one they expected. The region's 50,000 quiet part of the Oregon coast became a target of anger after passing a directive that all residents wear masks indoors and outdoors, with a few exceptions, including for people of color worried about racial profiling and harassment. The directive passed on June the 16th, went viral after the New York Post story with the headline, Oregon County Issues Face Mask Order That Exempts Non-White People. By Wednesday, as the story spread and a small office in Newport was bombarded with thousands of angry emails and phone calls, the county revised its directive. I I can't believe it passed in the first place, but there you have it. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we're going to hear from Steve Brown. Talk the walk. How to be right without being insufferable. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, it can be difficult to be a Christian in today's culture. There are a lot of assumptions about what Christians do and don't believe, what we should and shouldn't do. Speaking up about issues related to faith can be intimidating. Well, in his new book, Talk the Walk, How to Be Right Without Being Insufferable, my next guest, Key Life Network founder Steve Brown, calls Christians to step out and speak up about what they know to be true, but to do it in a comely way. He invites Christians to cultivate both the boldness and humility in communicating gospel truth by uncovering self-righteousness and spiritual arrogance. Uh, Talk the Walk shatters stereotypes and helps believers consider how they present the good news without watering it down and without offending by our approach. He writes that while we as Christians may be right on issues of salvation and theology, we may miss the less articulated truths of humility, love, and forgiveness. And by helping men and women love others out of a deeper love in Christ, the one who first loved us, regardless of our condition at the time. He helps Christians present the gospel clearly and with compassion. 
oh, would that we would do that well. Well, Steve Brown is the founder of Key Life Network, Inc., the Bible teacher on the radio program Key Life and host of the talk show Steve Brown, etc. He was a pastor for more than 30 years and continues speaking extensively. He's authored numerous book and books, rather, including How to Talk So People Will Listen, Three Free Sins, Hidden Agendas, and his latest release, Talk the Walk. He's also written for publications such as Leadership, Decision, Plain Truth, and Today's Christian Woman. He previously served as a member of the Board of Directors of Christianity Today and Harvest USA. He and his wife um, have two married daughters, three granddaughters. They make their home in Orlando, Florida, but today he is ours by virtue of phone to talk about his latest book, Talk the Walk, How to Be Right Without Being Insufferable. Steve Brown, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, Georgine, thanks for having me. I was having a conversation with one of my coworkers earlier today, and we were marveling at your dulcet tones and your beautiful voice. <laughs> I might get distracted Georgine, just a I bit. I just want you to know I'm good-looking, too. <laughs> we it, suspect it as You much. know, it's hard to just be a pretty voice. <laughs> Actually, God thought it was funny to put this voice in this uh, body, and I've never thought it was funny, but he said it was good for me, so Yeah, I guess it's okay. And it's good for the rest of us, so we're, we're happy about it. Well, let me ask you about our perception of where we stand as believers in the 21st century in America. There certainly has been a cultural shift toward dismissing a Christian worldview. And we, uh, many of us today, have never experienced this kind of uh, pressure uh, to walk our faith out in our culture. But how is that different than what Christians have experienced around the world from its, uh, its beginning? Well, certainly in this country, uh, we have moved into what scholars for a while called post-modernity. Mm-hmm. And um, that word is not uh, in in academic circles anymore. But we know there's been a cultural shift. Before, we had power and money and political connections. I'm an old guy, so I can remember when they used to print pastor sermons on the front pages of the local local newspapers. But now, uh, if you've read the studies, there are a lot of nuns. Uh, you know that we don't have any power or leverage anymore. We don't have uh, the kind of PR we once had. And that's really bad. As a matter of fact, it's not. It's really good. Uh, We now have to do it Jesus' way, and uh, that's not a half-bad place to be. I teach my students that um, if they'll take off their ties and um, if they will be real, they can go down to the section in Orlando where people have purple hair and earrings and funny places and sit down. And if they'll listen, they will be heard. For the first time in almost a century, Christians have a level playing field. Um, and so it's really good news, but in order for that level playing field to work, we've got to set aside some things that have been important to us, hmm. like success and uh, leverage, um, the way we've gotten our ways. I have a friend who wrote a book a couple of years ago called Minority Rules, 
and he, of course, was playing on the words. But we live in a, in fact, I don't know of any time in my lifetime where Christians can get a hearing more than right now. But as a matter of fact, we're doing it wrong. So mm. is part uh, of the reason we keep doing it wrong, they're not going to listen. Yeah, it's part of the reason we struggle because we we are not familiar with Jesus' way and we are doing it wrong. That's very true. That's very true. And we and and you know, I I don't believe in any way that we should compromise our truth because it's revealed and we have to speak it. I wrote a chapter in the book called uh, Watered Down Wine, and there are a lot of people who change the truth in order to be accepted or alternatively won't speak the truth. And we don't dare do that because the issue is so important. Now, you write, and it's it's difficult to say out loud, but because it's true, I will. You write that some of the meanest, most condemning and arrogant people on the face of the earth are... Christians, um, and that we're missing out on uh, with regarding uh, to humility and love and forgiveness. How did we miss the mark? I mean, you've you've touched on this and what you've already said, but how is it that we've drifted drifted so far um, from having a gaining a hearing um, by the attitude and our approach? Because Georgine, uh, self righteousness is addictive, and not only is it addictive, it's the one sin that never names itself. And so if you're self-righteous, and we're right, by the way, Georgine, that's the most dangerous thing about being a Christian is that we're right. And if you're right, it's a very short step to move from that to righteousness, to self-righteousness. And we've started to assume that we're people's mother, that we've been called to change the world by winning the arguments. And, um, Georgine, it's just not true. Um, uh, if you ask the average person what they think about a Christian, it won't be very positive. And so it seems to me that the first thing that we have to do if we're going to witness and do it Jesus' way is to confess our sins. Hmm. We don't do that. We you know, we try to portray, we think that we must be perfect. And if we can't pull that off, it'll hurt our witness. Georgine, that's from the pit of hell. It's not biblical. It's not true. If you read the seventh chapter of uh, Romans, the apostle Paul gives the most amazing confession. In fact, when I first read it, I thought, I don't believe I would have said that. And he's very clear about his own sins. And there are those Bible scholars who say he's talking about the past. But the last time I checked, uh, God could conjugate verbs. (laughs) And if it was supposed to be in the past, it'd be written in the past. Paul's talking about the ongoing reality of every believer. In fact, when we proclaimed that we were following Christ, we joined a club where the only requirement is not to be qualified. And and we forget that sometimes. Martin Luther said, sanctification is getting used to your justification. And uh, we don't think that. We think sanctification is being better and better in every way, every day, 
so that the world will see how nice and wonderful and obedient we are and will want to be like us. They don't want to be like us. But if, and then I'm, you know, I'm rambling on, but Georgine, the most important response that a Christian can get to his or her witness is this. You too, I never would have guessed. Hmm. Yeah, that's good. We're going to take a break here in a moment, but when we come back, I want to uh, invite you to talk about the phrase, speak the truth in love. Um, uh, There are things that we misunderstand about love that results in not speaking the truth well, and I want to give you an opportunity to, uh, to comment on that. So we'll be back in just a few moments. Again, we're talking about the book, Talk the Walk, How to Be Right Without Being Insufferable. Maybe more challenging than we realize because we don't realize we're insufferable. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Continuing my conversation with Steve Brown, his latest book, Talk the Walk, How to Be Right Without Being Insufferable. Now, many of us, most of us are familiar with the uh, scripture that says that we're to speak the truth in love. What is it that we get wrong? You've talked about um, hypocrisy, self-righteousness, but also humility and love. What is it that we get wrong uh, with this notion of speaking the truth in love? If you uh, really try, you can love people that you don't love very much. As a matter of fact, that's not true. Uh, love doesn't, uh, isn't something you can manufacture or even that you can fake. Uh, let me give you a principle. Well, let me tell you two things. First, um, love in response to goodness isn't love. It's reward. And the only way you can experience love is to be unlovable. Then the principle is this. You can't love until you've been loved, and then you can only love to the degree to which you have been loved. And um, what most Christians miss is the fact that we've been called to do nothing but allow Jesus to love us. And when he does that, then we have the ability to love other people insofar as we allow him to love us. I have a friend whose uh, business is billboards. And he became concerned a number of years ago with the divisions of the hatred and the war that was going on in Northern Ireland. And he wanted to do something, but he didn't know what to do. But since his business was billboards, he took out billboard advertising all over Northern Ireland. And by the way, I love that country. I was there not too long ago for some uh, meeting with a bunch of churches where I was teaching. And uh, you know what he put on those billboards? He put the simple message, I love you. Is that okay? Sign Jesus. Well, that sign was for pagans, of course, but it was also important for Christians. And once we realize that, listen, we're, we're unlovable people. We really are, Georgine. And uh, once we recognize that we're what the Bible says we are, and we run to Jesus because the law has convicted us, we get loved. And then an amazing thing happens, a whole attitude change 
in terms of our relationship with other people. And our witness, too. Our witness it becomes, I hate that word, authentic. It's being overused, mm-hmm. but I can't think of a better one. But we become real. Yeah. We, the best thing we can do in our world is confess our sins. Because we're nothing but beggars telling other beggars where we found bread. And we're not former beggars either. We're needy just like pagans. We're sinful. Uh, we are scared. We're lonely sometimes. We're marginalized sometimes. And once we're willing to take off our armor and to speak about the difference that Jesus makes, people will listen. I know that it's a challenge for us to make that admission that we know to be true, but we sometimes imagine that if we are that open about our neediness before God, that somehow we're not going to be heard. But the opposite is, in fact, true. If we acknowledge our need for Christ in the same way that the world needs him, then it seems that we're more approachable and less, um, well, self-righteous, to use the word, the phrase that we've been using. (laughs) It is so true. And, and, you know, it's always a surprise because we didn't expect it. Um, you know what? And I, you know, I'm into evidential apologetics and I like all that kind of stuff. But the main issue of apologetics is the problem of suffering. And I don't have all the answers for it, but I do know that for believers, when we go through bad stuff, um, uh, God is bringing us to the end of ourselves. And when we finally get to the end of ourselves, then maybe Jesus can use us as his witness in the world. You write about some things that we should never do and um, how those things uh, get us into trouble. What should we as believers never do? Georgina, I wrote this book a year and a half ago, and I don't remember what I said in that (laughs) chapter. (laughs) But I know some things we should never do. We should never be arrogant. Uh, We should never pretend to be something we're not. We should be honest, never dishonest about our witness. Never change the truth in order to be accepted. Always speak the truth when God gives us an opportunity. Don't remain silent. You know, Satan's biggest trick is to get us to be to be quiet. Mm-hmm. And the way he does it is we think nobody will listen, but they will. They will listen if we're willing to be like Jesus. No money, no power, no leverage, no manipulation. By the way, there's a there's a chapter in the book that's titled uh, "Nobody's Mother." You know, we've been we've been uh, thinking that every time locusts attack a third world country crop, we ask, "What did we do wrong?" <laughs> and we've taken on ourselves a job uh, that is only God's job. I. Uh, I don't have to fix other people. That's not my responsibility. I can't even fix myself. Uh, and so and so once I decide that I don't have to be somebody's mother, uh, then at that point I can be their friend. 
and that includes gays and lesbians and liars and and gluttons and and all kinds of people because those are the people that Jesus loves and we dare not um, avoid the people that Jesus himself loves. For such were some of us and still are. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> That's me. You know, we did a promotional video on this book and they hired a fighting ring uh, with a lot of smoke and I was standing in the middle of the fighting ring and uh, talked about how we're always fighting and I'm always trying to tell people how good I am and I'm phony and since I'm an expert, I can speak to this issue and so that's why I wrote the book. <laughs> what do you want your readers to, to be the number one takeaway uh, from Talk the Walk how to be right without being insufferable. And I, I love the use of that word, by the way. Um, I think the one thing I would take away is, I would want people to take away, is the importance of being like Jesus and not like our pastor. Hmm. <laughs> you know, we I have taught more courses on evangelism than I can possibly say. And, um, and I repent. Because evangelism is showing. Georgine, everybody who's a Christian listening right now smells like Jesus, and you can't help it. When Paul says, I'm crucified with Christ, it wasn't a command. It was a fact. And so even if you're not walking it, you still smell like Jesus. And all you got to do is to be who you are, hang with him, and go where he goes, and you'll be absolutely blown away with what happens. Amen. Once again, the title of the book, Talk the Walk, How to Be Right Without Being Insufferable. I plan on reading it again, and I thank you so much for joining us today to talk about it. Georgine, thanks for having me. You're a delight. Thank you so much. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Steve Brown. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, you may have noted that Oregon, um, they're telling us, could uh, face exponential growth in the new coronavirus infections by the middle of July. Now, I'm always a bit skeptical of modeling that speculates about what the future will hold. We can't really tell if it's going to rain or not rain and any number of things we're unsure of, but... We're, te- we're being told that we should brace for exponential growth in new coronavirus infections by the middle of next month. That's according to the latest modeling that was released today by the Oregon Health Authority. The grim forecast suggests that Oregon could see anywhere from 910 new daily infections to an astounding 5,030 a day by the 16th of June. Now, that's a significant range. So when you're talking about modeling, it tells us really very little. Are we talking about 910 or are we talking about 5,000? Anyway, depending on the level of spread, they're predicting this could happen. Hospital admissions could hit 27 a day under the moderate scenario, the threshold that Oregon surpassed only once during the pandemic, a week after the governor ordered residents to stay home. Well, the pessimistic scenario suggests that admissions could reach 82 a day, a staggering high number that could challenge hospital systems across the state. Now, I understand it's important for uh, them to try to forecast because hospitals need to be prepared for what may be coming. But we've seen that forecasting that's too uh, aggressive uh, in New York, for example, and in other places where they anticipated much larger numbers 
and the hospitals uh, devoted all of their resources to addressing them. They didn't materialize, which is a good thing, but forecasts can be tricky. Well, state health officials also modeled a third optimistic scenario that would represent a slowdown in the pandemic spread. But they largely dismissed that as being implausible, given the state's record level of identified infections this month. Now, Oregon's non-optimistic forecasts demonstrate that increases in transmission, if maintained, would lead to exponential growth in new infections, an official from the Oregon Health Authority says. The modeling is not a predictor of what will happen. And instead, it's used for planning purposes. But the forecasts are calculated based on Oregon's current trend lines and the state's pessimistic model from two weeks ago has appeared to be largely prescient. Well, that previous worst-case forecast released June the 12th indicated that Oregon could reach more than 1,000 new infections a day before the 4th of July. Well, modeling indicates that Oregon has identified only about one-fifth to one-quarter of actual infections, and identified infections from the past week have averaged more than 150 a day. Now, it's important to note that while the number of infections has increased, the number of deaths has either decreased or remained the same, very low in the state of Oregon. But according to Dr. Dean Seidlinger, it would be very difficult for us to contain with the same level of attention that we'd like to as we open up, Uh, The state health officer and epidemiologist previously said that 1,000 cases a day would be the case, so I hope that doesn't happen, he went on to say. Well, officials for the Oregon Health Authority will be available to speak to reporters about the latest modeling throughout the uh, days ahead. The modeling suggests coronavirus transmission has increased since Oregon governors, Oregon's governor rather, allowed most countries to begin reopening on the 15th, or I should say counties, the 15th of May. But the degree of change was um, informed by hospitalization and diagnosis data, not by the assumed effect of any policy, the state official um, uh, recorded. Well, one Oregon Health Authority, um, rather the Oregon Health Authority, ran the forecasts using software from the Institute for Disease Modeling. Officials assume about 4,000 Oregonians will be tested each day going forward. The modeling appears to show that Oregon had uh, re- recorded between 20 to 25,000 actual infections through the 18th of June, with some number about above 5,000 actually identified. The report does not qualify. Uh, rather quantify each figure and the accompanying line charts are difficult to pinpoint with any precision, but this is what they say could happen. Now, the only way to prevent that from happening, if this reflects with any accuracy what the future could hold, is for all of us to maintain social distancing and in the counties identified by the governor to wear masks when outside. Um, And this applies to a handful of counties, not all of them, but that is what we're being asked to do. So there you have it. That's the forecast they've made. And the um, the actual numbers will depend largely on what you and I actually do. So keep that in mind. Well, Family Research Council has once again this year uh, called the people in the body of Christ all across the country to pray. And there are lots of prayer uh, groups meeting throughout the the, uh, Portland metro area. There are people praying on the streets, people praying in their homes, people in Zoom meetings involved in prayer. And I'm so grateful that events have led us to, um, I think, the first most important line of defense, and that is to fall to our knees and to pray and ask God for help and wisdom and direction and all the things we know we so desperately need. Well, the Family Research Council is also calling on people across the country to join in a, a season of prayer on Sunday, they're calling it Call the Number Two Fall, Call to Fall. 
and they're looking at the scripture in Chronicles about praying and asking God to heal our land. If you'd like more information or to participate, you can go to the website, call the number to fall, no spaces, call to fall.com, and uh, you can learn about um, what's happening all across the country as we bow the knee and ask God for help. They even provide some resource to help us consider who to pray for, who the decision makers are. Um, we are in such a tremendously challenging season. And uh, as I mentioned yesterday, it is such a, a privilege and a mystery to me that the God of the universe, who is holy and perfect and righteous, would invite us, of course, through his son uh, to come before him boldly. Uh, to his throne, and I love that it's referred to as the throne of grace. We come with all of our stuff. We are cleansed by the blood of the land, and we have access to God the Father to bring our uh, requests and make them known. So I hope we're all taking advantage of that opportunity, and call to fall is just another expression of it. I'm grateful for churches who have, throughout this season, when the when the pandemic began um, and when the unrest, social unrest began, they have been on the streets of Portland praying, sometimes on the sidelines of protests, sometimes in places of influence on the steps of the state capitol, sometimes praying um, uh, spread out along streets where there has been strife in our communities. And I'm, I'm so grateful that um, there are men and women of faith who take that uh, opportunity seriously. And if you have not yet been a part of that movement, whether it's in your living room, um, kneeling there, or you're out on the street with a group of believers, socially distanced, praying for our nation and our communities. Um, I just want to encourage you to do just that. And take advantage of the opportunity we have to meet as the body of Christ through the technology of the 21st century. Um, I miss being in church shoulder to shoulder with other believers, but I am so grateful that in the 21st century, unlike the flu pandemic some 100 years ago, we can come together Virtually, we can hear from our pastors, we can hear from our worship teams, we can study God's Word together, we can pray together. Take advantage of that uh, technology. I saw uh, a survey recently that said a, a small percentage of believers are taking advantage of the opportunity to gather as the body of Christ. Remember to support your uh, your church and leaders in the congregation you attend during this season, and I think we're all going to survive stronger and better and prepared to serve our community and the, uh, the needs that will emerge when it all ends. I'd like to invite you to join us next week for the best of the Georgine Rice Show so far. The best interviews, the best conversations, things that are relevant to us now and to our eternal perspective. Join us next week on the Georgine Rice Show, the best of the Georgine Rice Show so far. I want to thank James Blind for producing, Clark Hilton for engineering, Dan Rice for the use of his office, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.